came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves, astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views, are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Thursday the 11th of April. 2019. Each fortnight we speak with a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science or particle physics. Today in Astrophys 79 we are speaking with Dr. Staz Shabala from Moldova via Cambridge University to his office here at the University of Tasmania. Staz will tell us about AGN radio jets, galactic evolution, geodetic VLBI and the Radio Galaxy Zoo Citizen Science Project. Strap on your propeller hats now. And that's followed by Dr Ian Astroblog Musgrave, who is a University Toxicology and Pharmacology lecturer, an amateur astronomer and astrophotographer, and he's going to tell us, What's up, Doc? What's up in the night, morning and evening skies for the next two weeks? And he takes us on our astronomical tangent. And we'll finish up as usual with our Astrophys News highlights from this golden age of astronomy, space science and astrophysics. So I had a fantastic time visiting the island of Tasmania and it is stunningly beautiful in every way. There is so much to see and do there. It's a unique part of Australia. So first up, let's listen to this interview with Staz. Hello, Staz. Hello, Brendan. Great to meet you. Today, I'm in Hobart in Tasmania, and we're speaking with Dr. Staz Shipala, who is an international astrophysicist and a senior lecturer in physics at the University of Tasmania. Staz does his research using powerful radio telescopes from all over the world and at the nearby Mount Pleasant facility. He investigates AGN radio jets and galactic evolution. And we're going to dive deep into geodetic VLBI, very long base interferometry. And we may even have time to talk about the Radio Galaxy Zoo Citizen Science Project that Staz has been involved in right from the start. This could be understating things a bit, Staz, but you've been very busy. Thanks, Brendan. Well, I guess there's lots of things to do. And all those things you've mentioned had a fair bit of help with from my wonderful colleagues. Excellent. So before we talk about your research into supermassive black holes and galactic evolution and geodetic VLBI, can you tell us where you grew up, please, Daz, and tell us how you became interested in science and space in the first place? Yes, 
I grew up in a place called the Soviet Union when it was still the Soviet Union. And that's actually how I like to refer to it because I guess the country I was born in no longer exists. But I was very fortunate because when I was 11 years old, my family moved across to Australia. My dad got a job here in beautiful Hobart. And that's where I grew up, which is just so lucky, I think. It's a wonderful place to have grown up. And my interest in science, well, that's an interesting one because I think culturally in Russian societies and uh, Soviet societies, the Soviet society, the profession of a scientist or an engineer, anything technology related was very highly respected. So same as doctors and teachers, they were the professions that really held the respect of the of the public. So it was always something that even um, if as a, as a child you were not necessarily drawn to it, it's something that you very much respected. But I also happened to be drawn to it. I quite liked maths and I think that really developed actually when we moved to Australia. But, and uh, I hope my maths colleagues are not listening to this uh, <laughs> recording, I found maths on its own just a little bit too dry. And uh, physics was, was an exciting real-world application of maths, which was really scary. I mean, I teach physics now and I'm still a bit scared of it because I don't understand quite a lot of the physics, but that's what makes it interesting. And you're constantly challenging yourself, constantly uh, moving along. So that's that's where my interest in, in science came from, I guess. Fantastic. So you were born in Moldova, then raised in Australia. Can you tell us a little about your school days and your early ambitions and did those ambitions change? Yeah, so I guess as a young teenager, originally I wanted to be a journalist. That's when I realised I was never going to make it as a professional tennis player. (laughs) Uh, But then eventually I settled on physics because it was, to me, a fundamental science that really captured my interest and and love of maths, but in in a more concrete way. And I always have been interested in not just the big science questions, but the way we can use both the answers to those questions and the way we ask the questions themselves to ask even better questions. So in particular, I was very fortunate with having uh, both my parents as, as really good role models for thinking deeply about things and some school teachers and some university teachers. And that's something that I'm quite passionate about. So I think we'll, a bit later we'll talk a bit about outreach and connecting with, with school children in particular and, and their interest in science. And, and that's something that developed in me during my formative years and that's something that I feel very strongly about. And that links back to your original interests in journalism as well. Perhaps. <laughs> Thanks, Des. So after your successful school career, you completed your undergraduate degree. Where was that? So that was here, actually, at the University of Tasmania. I hold the dubious distinction of now being a member of staff at the place where I did my undergraduate degree. Fantastic. And then your doctorate in astrophysics and cosmology at the University of Cambridge in 2008. Can you tell us a little about how that came about? And life as a doctoral student in Cambridge, England, and your thesis on AGN feedback in galaxy evolution. Yeah, so how that came about is I guess I applied for a place and a scholarship and and got one. And uh, it was one of those things which was, I sort of just threw in an application to see what happens. But of course, once I got offered a place, I couldn't say no. Um, (laughs) And it was an interesting experience. So I was 20 years old and I moved overseas and it was great. You know, I think it really made me grow up, made lifelong friends, learned lots of wonderful things, both about astronomy and life in general. And Cambridge was a very interesting place because it was so historical, full of people who write the textbooks that you read and study from. 
but also so incredibly international, particularly in terms of the student cohort, and very diverse. So that was a really great experience. In terms of my thesis on AGN feedback in galaxy evolution, it was a piece of work that really tried to link two areas the areas of jets from regions around supermassive black holes, so we call them active galactic nuclei, jets, AGN jets, and formation and evolution of galaxies. And so since that time, I've been using various techniques to try and bring those two areas closer together, and I guess develop methods for having research in one inform the other. Now, I meant to put this question in, but I didn't. Feedback to an astrophysicist is something different to the feedback we use in everyday language. Tell us a little about this feedback that you're talking about. Yeah, great question. Thanks, Brendan. So so when we talk about feedback in the astrophysical context, we usually talk about something that's not too dissimilar to, to feedback in normal life. So we're talking about a loop where something happens and affects part of your system, and then that part of the system reacts to whatever's just happened, to feedback on the thing that yep. caused it to change. And then you just keep going around in circles. Yep. And so in the context of AGN jets, you have these supermassive black holes. When we say supermassive, we mean a million to a billion times more massive than our sun. So the center of the Milky Way in the, in the constellation of Sagittarius, we have a supermassive black hole. That's kind of at the small end because our galaxy is not particularly huge for these supermassive ones, but it's still you know, over a million solar masses. And so so they sit there at the centers of galaxies, these black holes, and of course, what do black holes do? They pull in matter gravitationally. And as that matter falls in, because everything in the universe is spinning, has non-zero angular momentum, as as the technical term, the matter that that comes in, it comes in on spiral orbits and and eventually comes into the black hole, but that forms what we call an accretion disk. And If the stuff is really hot and uh, has magnetic fields in it, that accretion disk together with the magnetic fields allows you to launch very powerful jets of relativistic plasma, so ionized material, that flows out at speeds close to the speed of light. Uh, And that's what we see as as these super bright jets. And so what happens is that these these jets now plow through the very center of the galaxy where there's lots of gas that would otherwise fall onto the black hole, and energetically, these jets are the most energetic things in the universe. And so, just naively, you'd expect them to do something as they're plowing through yep. that surrounding gas. And that's the process of feedback. So what we think often happens is that the material falls onto the accretion disk of the black hole, launches the jets, and in the pro- process of those jets burrowing through the surrounding gas, the feedback process causes that material to be blown away, yep heated, and that stops the accretion process until things settle down and the whole thing restarts. Thanks very much for clarifying that one for me. So now you've been lecturing in physics here at the University of Tasmania for some time, and how are you finding that balance between your academic life and your life as a researcher? Oh, it's wonderful. It's really great as a standard member of staff at a university, you tend to spend about half your time doing research and half your time doing teaching. Of course, that's on average. And I find that the two really inform each other. So often we try to fold in our research as, I guess, real world examples and real universe examples of applications of the physics that we teach to our students so that we can 
give them more than just theory, and also introduce them to the cutting-edge research that's happening right here that, that they would otherwise not be aware of. And the opposite holds true as well. It's a real privilege teaching students. I realized a few years ago in one of my first-year physics classes that every single student who was sitting there in the auditorium was there because they wanted to be there to the extent where, you know, they were paying their hex fees, they were bothering to turn up and do the assignments. And that subject wasn't a prerequisite for anything that they were doing. So they were all there because they were interested in physics. I was there because I was interested in physics. It was a nice place to be in. So I tried pretty hard to not make the lectures too boring. (laughs) Fantastic. Let's look now at your earliest research into AGM active galactic nuclei and supermassive black holes and radio jets. You've just described them to us, but in general, are these in the heart of lots of galaxies? What goes on there? And how do you know what you know about AGN and radio jets, please? And this is probably a stupid question. Um, How do we know that that luminosity, that brightness at the centre of an active galaxy, it's not just a lot of really bright stars sitting there. How do we know it's supermassive black holes? Look, that's a really great question. That's, uh, you know, whenever I always get scared when people say this is probably a stupid question because it's usually a really good one. So the basic answer is it's just too bright in a really small amount of space. So if you take the typical luminosity, um, what we call the bolometric luminosity, which just means added up across all parts of the electromagnetic spectrum of one of these active galactic nuclei, it works out to be something like 10 to the 12, if, we, if we're using uh, scientific notation, uh, solar luminosity. So you need yep. you know, one with 12 zeros, suns, yep. in there. And just for comparison, that's about 10 times more bright than all the stars in the Milky Way. Yep. Now, some galaxies can get up to be that massive, but that's across the whole galaxy, not the little region at the center. And some AGN are much brighter than even, even this 10 to the 12 uh, solar luminosities. So, so we know that that really has to be something else. And of course, if we talk about non-luminous black holes, which, which is actually the majority that they don't emit this bright emission, we know, uh, for example, that in the center of our own Milky Way, we have this supermassive black hole that we've talked about already by looking at stellar orbits. So, so if we look at um, the motion of stars in the direction of the constellation of Sagittarius, you can see that they do all sorts of really weird things and their orbits get deflected uh, around some mysterious point where there is not all that much. And what you can do is you can track the orbits of these stars for 10 or 15 years and then do some calculations of what sort of mass must be sitting there that you can't see to affect the orbits of all those stars in the way that's observed. And that's how we actually infer the mass of the black hole in the centre of our galaxy. I think I've seen a GIF of that somewhere. It's, it's, is that the SAG A one? That that's GIF exactly that's floating right. around on the internet. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's beautiful. I, yeah. I use it in pretty much every outreach talk. I think it's one of the most incredible results in yeah. astrophysics. Yeah, it is beautiful. Okay, so what else does your AGN research tell us about the evolution of galaxies? They're not just sitting there. No, so AGN are, are really interesting. I mean, you'd expect me to say that, <laughs> but I think, I think they're really great for, for a whole number of reasons. So the first one is this feedback process that we talked about. So it turns out that if you ask the question of 
how do we explain all the populations of galaxies that we see up in the sky? And in fact, in astronomy, we can do a bit of history because of the finite travel speed of light. And so the further back we look in distance corresponds to looking back in time. So we can start asking questions like, how have galaxies formed and evolved across cosmic time? It turns out that if you basically put together all the physics that you think is relevant for gas clouds coming together under gravity with dark matter and then forming rotating structures, eventually gravitationally collapsing to form stars, which are gravitationally bound together. And so that's what makes you galaxies with gas and stars and dust. And then you ask the question of how many bright galaxies do I have? How many faint galaxies do I have? You get things remarkably close to being right, except that you completely overpredict the number of the most massive galaxies. So you make way too many big galaxies with lots of stars. And those also happen to be, observationally, the galaxies where we know there are lots of AGN, where we think there are these big injections of energy going right into the center of galaxy, probably doing something to the gas that you expect to cool down and form stars. So this was realized a couple of decades ago, that this could be a solution to this problem of making too many stars in the models. And we now know that the two seem to to match up. So the energy output from these AGN is the thing that stops the gas from cooling and and making too many big galaxies. But the other reason why studying jets is very important is because it doesn't just tell you about how they've affected the galaxies. Something must have happened to trigger those AGN, right? So remember I told you a little bit earlier that most black holes just sit there dormant. They're not actually bright either in the radio part of the electromagnetic spectrum or other parts. So what causes the black holes to switch on and give you this AGN emission? And that's a really interesting question. And there are a number of mechanisms that can do that. But it also tells you that if you see a galaxy in which there is now an AGN, something interesting has happened to that galaxy. And so instead of thinking of AGN as just agents of change through the feedback, you can also think of them as signposts for something happening to your galaxy. And the third reason that I think they're really interesting and useful is because they're just very extreme laboratories for the physics that we don't have access to here on Earth. I said that they're the most energetic things in the universe over a sustained period of time. They stay switched on for for millions, tens, hundreds of millions of years sometimes. So the amount of energy they pump out is huge, and they're also very efficient particle accelerators. So the reason we see this radio emission is because it's a relativistic synchrotron emission of electrons going around magnetic field lines. And it turns out that you expect that emission to sort of die off as the jet travels through, and it doesn't. So there must be some processes that accelerate the particles in there. And we don't we actually don't really understand it yet. But of course, we cannot recreate these energies on Earth just yet. So we can really study some, some pretty exciting physics. I believe you dabble in applied astronomy, <laughs> your words, and you use a technique called geodetic VLBI, that's very long base interferometry, to use quasars to accurately measure positions using both terrestrial and celestial frames of reference. Now, in a nutshell, what is geodetic VLBI and what can you do with it? Okay, so I love this question. Uh, so, so geodetic VLBI is a technique that is almost the exact inverse of conventional very long baseline interferometry that we use in astronomy. 
Yeah, so conventional VLBI, astronomical VLBI, is where we use widely spaced radio telescopes, uh, often on different continents around the world, to look at the same object. And we combine those signals, we record them at each station, and then cross-correlate them. And we use the finite travel speed of light to infer the differences in time of signal arrival at different telescopes. And we use that to make a very sharp, high-resolution image of the object that we look at. So compared to something like the Compact Array, which is the premier radio instrument in Australia, the technique of VLBI can give you a resolution that is, let's say, a thousand times better. And so you can, you can study different kinds of structures, different kinds of spatial scale. Now, what you can do, and I think this is so clever, you can turn this around and instead of saying, let's use all these different telescopes pointing at one jet, one quasar, to study that quasar, let's turn it around and say, we know something about the quasar. For example, we know where it is in the sky yep. to a high degree of accuracy. Let's now ask the question of where is my telescope on the ground? And how does that change over time? And so by using this technique, what you do is you take a pair of telescopes, which we call a baseline. Yep. That's the baseline in the B in VLBI. And we have both telescopes on at each end of the baseline observing the same quasar. Yep. And then they go and observe another quasar. And then they go and observe another quasar. And by taking the averages of the differences in the time arrival, we measure the distance between the two telescopes. And we repeat it for all possible pairs of telescopes. And in this way, we can reconstruct the geometry of the Earth. Now, not only that, we don't just reconstruct the geometry of the Earth. We can also reconstruct how the Earth is moving in space. Yeah. The rotation of the Earth, the wobble of the axis, yeah. all those things. And that's actually what makes this technique of VLBI unique compared to other space geodesy techniques. For example things like GNSS, which is Global Navigation Satellite Systems, yep. and GPS is one of those. The satellites in orbit don't know if anything changes on the Earth. They're yep. tied to the Earth's gravitational field. Whereas here, the quasars are effectively, they're, they're at redshift one, halfway across the universe, most of them, which means they're fixed points on the sky. And so we can really measure what's going on on Earth and how Earth rotation is changing. So the people who study plate tectonics would love your research. Absolutely. So VLBI constructs a frame of reference, both in the sky, so that's a celestial reference frame, and on Earth, the terrestrial reference frame, to which you can then start anchoring other measurements, such yeah. as GPS. That's astonishing. Okay. I think using the word dabble then could have been a bit of an understatement. I'm sorry. Now... You're a very strong proponent of public science literacy, and you involve yourself in science in the pub, those sort of programs here in Tassie. But perhaps you could tell us about a worldwide citizen program you've worked on called Radio Galaxy Zoo that's having an impact on real research. Yeah, so Radio Galaxy Zoo is a really, really interesting and wonderful, I think, um, citizen science program. It is related to the original Galaxy Zoo, which was done at optical wavelengths probably a decade ago now, more than a decade ago. And the idea behind Radio Galaxy Zoo was to ask for help from citizen scientists to help us classify images of radio emission in the sky. So the idea here is that when we point a radio telescope at the sky, 
Sometimes we detect something, well, most of the time, because we should know where we're looking. But interpreting that emission is often not straightforward at all. And in particular, if you're interested in things like radio jets, sometimes what you'll get uh, in terms of the radio emission from the sky will be a component of a radio jet, but sometimes it will be just radio emission due to star formation in the galaxy you're looking at. And you need to be able to separate those out. And people have written automated computer programs to do this work, but it turns out to be quite a tricky problem because often you are limited by the technical capability of your telescope. And of course, like all scientists, we try to push our instrumentation to the limit. And so often computer programs find it very difficult to connect together discrete blobs of radio emission and then associating them with a particular optical galaxy, for example, which is the easiest way of, of, of identifying galaxy where the jets are coming from. The human brain is a marvelous machine at doing that sort of stuff, image recognition. So a few years ago, uh, led by two colleagues, Julie Banfield and Ivy Wong, a group of us put together a call to citizen scientists asking them if they would be interested in helping us to do this. And the real reason we wanted to do this is because right now we could just about, you know, the radio astronomers could sit down together and go through the images ourselves and it will take a fair bit of time. Yeah. But the, the data that we have now we can almost handle. It's starting to get tough, but we can handle. But in the next few years, we'll have some really exciting surveys coming online. For example, with the Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder, ASCAP, there's a survey called EMU, which stands for Evolutionary Map of the Universe. A lot of ASCAP surveys have um, Australian animal names as, as, as their acronyms. I'm really excited about EMU, but EMU is going to give us a big problem. It's going to detect 70 million radio sources, of which probably about 90% are going to be simple enough to classify automatically. Yeah. But that still leaves you with 7 million objects on which you need either human eyes yeah. or some sort of a machine learning algorithm. But to supervise machine learning, you need to have a data set that you can use to train your machines on. And so the, uh, one, of the, one of the main forward-looking ideas behind Radio Galaxy Zoo was to develop a training set to do machine learning on. Yeah. But of course, we've done lots of really interesting science um, in the process. So we've been going a few years now so the, the things that we measure in terms of you know, how well we're tracking as a citizen science project is how many people we have engaged and how many classifications we've done. Um, and so we've engaged over 12,000 citizen scientists who've helped us, and they've done over 2 million classifications of, of radio galaxies, which is far and beyond what we could have done as just professional astronomers. And we've discovered some really cool things along the way. So one of the really interesting discoveries that we made was, in fact, when I say we, I mean two citizen scientists spotted this thing. They saw some radio emission which had a particular shape. It was sort of slightly C-shaped. And then they, they went out on their own and uh, chased down the data that was publicly available on, on, on various websites. And then they realized that they saw this massive structure which was, which was a million light years across. And it was a bent radio structure. And that's immediately to, to a radio astronomer very interesting because so you had these jets that went straight. They were bent in a C shape. Yeah. And what that tells you is that what's probably happening is you, have, you start out with two straight jets, but then the black hole and therefore the galaxy in which that black hole lives 
is not stationary. It's moving through some gas, which is pushing the those jets back. Just like when you're cycling without a helmet, which you should never do, you've got you know the wind sweeping your hair back. It's exactly the same sort of process. And you can do some calculations about if you know something about these jets and how fast they are, and we understand these jets well enough, you can calculate how much gas it must be moving through. And it turned out to be so much gas that it was actually a new cluster of galaxies that was discovered by two citizen scientists looking yep. at um, looking at these bent jets. So that was really cool. A real genuine discovery of a structure in the sky yep. we didn't know about by citizen scientists. And there's probably quite a few papers coming out of the work being done by citizen scientists. Absolutely. That's fantastic. Now, the mic's all yours, and you've got the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about one of the challenges we face in science, or science denialism, or science career paths, or equity, diversity, our quest for knowledge, or even science outreach. The mic's all yours, Stas. Thanks, Brendan, and I'm sure you understand what a dangerous undertaking this is, giving an academic an open mic. So I had a bit of a think about this, because you pre-warned me, of course, and I think my my rant slash rave, it's a bit of both, is is going to be about science teaching at schools, actually, which is something that I'm quite passionate about. And I'm aware of this because of some of the work that I've been doing, trying to um, integrate real research data into the science classroom. And what I find invariably is that science teachers at school are just you know, wonderful by and large in terms of the effort that they put in and the, the outcomes that they want for the children they're teaching. But it seems to me that, that far too often they're asked to do something that's way beyond their training, I guess. And so what I find quite disappointing is that Often teachers, particularly in, in uh, state schools, are asked to teach way outside their area of expertise. And as a tertiary teacher myself, I know that it's very difficult to be enthusiastic about a subject which you don't feel confident in. So I would really like to see this, this change. So in particular, in Tasmania in the last couple of years, there's been a real uptake of, of actually PhD graduates going in and doing teaching degrees, teaching conversion degrees, with the view of then going and teaching that particular subject in the classroom. And I think that's a wonderful idea because, not just because these people are trained as researchers and, and therefore they can pass on that inquisitiveness to the students, even though I think that's absolutely crucial, but also because they have the enthusiasm, passion and confidence for the subject. And that's the most important thing you can give to a high school student, I think. So I really hope that as a society, we take that on board and we say, look, the future of our children is so important. We want them to be taught by people who love the area that they're teaching, who are confident in it, and who can transfer that, that love and that confidence yeah. and that willingness to really ask and be brave enough to ask the hard questions and then be brave enough to roll your sleeves up and go and try and answer them. At year seven, year eight, year nine level, that's, I think, where it's really crucial. And that's great. Science isn't about memorising facts, which is the way science used to be taught. It's really about asking questions about the world around us, you know. So I think you've hit the nail right on the head there. Okay, well, is there anything else that we should watch out for in the near future, Stas? What are you keeping your eye on? Lots of things. In my particular, I guess, broader area of research, 
couple of things I'm really excited about are the Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder yeah. and all the data that's about to come out of that. And all the modeling and the interpretation that people like me will have to uh, work pretty hard on to, to help with that. I'm pretty excited about that. On the geodesy side of things, a really exciting development that's going on around the world right now is the construction of telescopes which, are, instead of observing very narrow frequency bands, which we've been limited to until now, we're going to observe across much wider bandwidths, which, which makes for much more precise measurements, a factor of a few, maybe even a factor of 10 better than we do now. And that will provide a reference frame that will really be able to measure climate signals and Earth evolutionary signals, but in particular uh, in, in relation to what's going on right now in the world, climate signals like sea level rise to the accuracy that's needed to really help with, with that science. The spar in the works, and this is, this is where I get a bit excited about it, is that it turns out that when you start getting to those sorts of accuracies to use quasars to measure your positions on the ground, then the standard assumption that it's okay to assume that quasars are perfect point sources rather than these things with jets and all sorts of weird structures, well, it turns out that that's no longer good enough. And you need to be able to understand the physics of your quasar jets and model them properly to then fold that into the geodetic measurements of positions on the ground. So that's something that will keep me and a few other people here busy for a while to come yet. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Staz Shabala. On behalf of our listeners, it's been really fabulous speaking with you. Thanks for your time. And we'll encourage all listeners to get into Radio Galaxy Zoo. Thank you, Brendan. And thank you very much for making the effort to come here and for your fantastic work with this podcast. Thanks very much. Excellent. Okay, let's cross to Adelaide now to speak with Dr. Ian Musgrave and his segment, What's Up, Doc? Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Great to be speaking with you again. Ian, how are you doing? I'm not doing too badly. Not too badly at all. We've had uh, some uh, a bit of up and down weather, but we've had uh, sufficiently bright and sunny days to uh, go out and enjoy the sky. And although my attempts to do some astrophotography this weekend got waylaid because I chose to spend the night watching anime with my young son. Very good. Okay, Ian, can you tell us What's up in the sky for the next two weeks? Well, there's quite a lot going on. If you start at the evening after the sunset, now Mars has still not disappeared below the horizon. It's hanging on in there, although to see it's best, you have to be looking around about an hour after sunset rather than an hour and a half when the sky is fully dark. If you were listening to last week's podcast, you would have noticed that on the 9th, the moon would be very close to Mars, in between Mars and the Hyades. The moon, of course, by the time this cast comes out, well, it moves on a bit, but Mars will be moving parallel to the A-shaped Hyades, which is a beautiful sight in itself, having left the Pleiades behind. Now, what's going to be interesting is that on the 13th, Mars will go between K1 Tau and U-Tau, otherwise known as 69-Tau. These are a pair of quite obvious stars below the A-shape of Hyades itself. And so Mars will split between them 
on the night of the 13th, although it'll be quite close to the uh, to uh, Utah, but it'll be still uh, quite visible. So it'll be something interesting to to watch out for. You can watch it approach over the coming nights and then uh, watch it move through and and then it will uh, continue to head on towards the horns of Taurus the bull. But for the next few nights, it's going to um, make a, uh, a second eye for Taurus the bull. Of course, the bright eye of Taurus the bull is the uh, bright red star Aldebaran. Mars is now quite dim, so it's not as quite as exciting. But you'll be able to see the, uh, the Taurus with two uh, burning red eyes rather than just one around about the 11th to 14th. In terms of planetary action, not much is going to be happening until around about 10 o'clock at night. Now, when Jupiter appears in the uh, evening sky, again, uh, Jupiter is still fairly low to the horizon. And although if you're up late at night, you can see it quite nicely. In terms of, uh, of telescope, you, you really have to wait until the uh, early morning to see it at its best. On the 23rd, the Moon and Jupiter are very close, and they'll be very nice to see. If you've got a very wide field like these for your telescope, you might be able to fit Jupiter and the edge of the Moon in together, and certainly they'll look very nice in binoculars together. And towards the uh, end of this week, you'll also see uh, Saturn beginning to peak over the horizon. So by the, by the end of this fortnight, you'll have not only Mars burning low in the west, at least until astronomical twilight, but also late in the evening, you'll have Saturn and Jupiter. On the 25th, most of Eastern Australia and some of Central Australia will be able to see Saturn appear behind the dark limb of the Moon. What I'll do is I'll, I'll put up the uh, correct times on Astroblog so people can uh, check the times for themselves. Occultations of Saturn are rare. Um, there, there's quite a few happening this year, but only two are really uh, readily visible from Australia. Very good. And that's also occurring on Anzac Day in Australia. So most of us will have the day off. This is also in the middle of, of the Australian school holidays. We'll have just come out of Easter. So many families will be out camping. And so if you've got a clear Easter horizon while you're camping, if you've got a small portable telescope or even just binoculars to get yourself set up and be prepared for something that's quite unusual and quite beautiful, of course, in to the unaided night, Saturn will appear behind the moon quite suddenly. Uh, in binoculars, you'll be able to see the edge of the ellipsoid that will be Saturn coming out and will look very spectacular. A telescope, the only problem being, of course, that being a reappearance, you have to be certain you're looking at the right spot at the right time to see Saturn come out from behind the moon. Uh, be very careful about uh, making sure you've got your telescope pointed uh, directly at the right place. So, while you'd love to have the biggest possible aperture to see Saturn in its all its glory, this is a really good sight to see, and it's going to occur during school holidays, so many people have a chance to see it without having to get up early the next morning. Tragically, most of the rest of the world doesn't see this, so uh, we in Australia and New Zealand are particularly, uh, uh, particularly lucky. Fantastic, I and mean, that sounds wonderful. Yeah. And also for those of you who will be on holidays then, uh, if you're getting up early in the morning to take kids bushwalking or get ready to go fishing or whatever it is you're going to do in the school holidays, you'll notice that uh, you, there are four bright planets in the early morning skies. If you look towards the north, you'll have Jupiter and Saturn not far from each other in the north. 
And if you look to the east, you'll uh, see Mercury and, and uh, Venus uh, glowing on, on the horizon. And on the 17th, Mercury and Venus will be at their closest. So they're not going to be fantastically close. There's going to be uh, less than a hand span apart. But if you're watching them over the next few weeks, you'll see Mercury and Venus come closer together. And then on the 17th, they'll be at their closest. Beautiful. A lot to see in the morning skies. And even in the evening skies, although the moon's waxing, the moon won't be too bright. And so you'll still have a chance to see some of the uh, amazing southern clusters that are around without the moonlight giving them too much. Something else you might be interested in is the Asteroid One series. The biggest, uh, brightest of the asteroids is going to be at opposition in the next couple of months, but it's now bright enough to see in binoculars, and it's not too far from Jupiter. So if you're up looking at Jupiter in binoculars, why not move your binoculars over a, a little bit to Eta Ophikai, and then about a uh, binocular width from Eta Ophikai is a un, uh, undistinguished easily visible star called like this HD152781 and right next to HD152781 for the next few weeks will be Ceres and if you watch from night to night you can watch Ceres move slightly away as it is uh, as I've said it's now um, uh, bright enough to easily spot in binoculars especially under dark sky sites and uh, it will only brighten as the weeks go on so well worth uh, following Unlike Vesta, it never gets bright enough to be seen with the unaided eye, but uh, it, it's a, a really good thing to be watching at the moment. So the skies are, they're, they're, they're doing well at the moment. Lots of things to see, Ian. Now, do you have a tangent for us for this episode? At the moment, we've got two spacecraft circling asteroids. I don't know what's happened to Dawn. Dawn may still be orbiting Ceres, but its mission has ended. So even though the Dawn mission is over, the Dawn spacecraft may still be orbiting Ceres. So let's just say, uh, let's pretend that because Ceres is a dwarf planet, uh, my statement is still completely correct. But then we've got two spacecraft circling asteroids at the moment, Hayabusa 2 and Rugu, and Osiris-Rex and Benau. Wow. Now, lots of interesting things have been going on. Osiris-Rex has been very, very carefully mapping Benau, and Hayabusa 2 has just blasted a hole in uh, Rugu. Now, you may have said, well, wait a second, didn't they just fire a tantalum bullet into Rugu only a little while ago and collect samples? Yes, it did. Yep. This time, they fired a big copper bullet into uh, Rugu to blast a big crater into it. Why, may you ask? Well, see, the thing is, the stuff we're picking up off the surface has been modified by uh, exposure to the solar wind, exposure to radiation, and by blasting a, a crater in it, you're blowing off all the uh, modified surface and you're getting closer to the interior. So they'll do another drop to the, to the uh, new crater's surface. Uh, boringly, it's going to take about two weeks because being uh, uh, risk-averse uh, during the most exciting moments of the impactor, they uh, moved the spacecraft to the other side of the asteroid to make sure it wasn't hit by debris, and now they're going to wait for two weeks to make sure the debris goes away. 
because you know it'd be kind of a bummer if you moved back and then smashed into a, a, a stray, stray rock and destroyed the entire mission. But uh, I watched the mission live, which was interesting because it was mostly in Japanese with the occasional English bit going, and you couldn't actually see what was going on because of the, of the light speed difference. Because you might move the main spacecraft away, you couldn't watch the impactor. So they left behind a special orbiting camera that stayed with the impactor. And the impactor was fired out by an end explosion. <laughs> when you think about, we come in peace for all mankind and we have an enormous amount of Semtex on board as well. <laughs> it's probably the biggest amount of plosives ever carried on any spacecraft ever. And so they fired off the Semtex, shot the copper slide to Virugu, excavated the crater, and we've got some images of crater material being sprayed out from the impact so we know it worked and they'll soon uh, excavate and be able to uh, maybe tell the difference between what's on the outside and what's on the inside and the effect of the long-term space weathering on the surface of the asteroid versus uh, what's going on on the inside. Now, this isn't the first time we fired a space bullet into an asteroid. Successfully, the previous Hayabusa attempted to do a similar thing but missed entirely. It's, it's interesting that I've been calling both the previous impactor and this impactor the dinosaur's revenge. As you know, the current theory for why the dinosaurs died out was a asteroid or comet slammed into the coast of what is now Mexico, excavating a huge crater setting pot wildfires and acid rain and then the equivalent of nuclear winter around the planet. And there's been a very controversial claim that they found a fossil site from when that happened. They yep. found a huge mass of fossils that have been uh, all tumbled together in what looks like a giant tsunami. It could be a tsunami except for the fact the fish have these glassy fragments in their gills that are associated with impact so it looks like they've got impact ejector clogging their gills so um, if this uh, plane it stands up to scientific scrutiny we actually have fossils from the moment when the uh, impactor slammed into earth which is absolutely fascinating so yes yeah, so that's why we call it the dinosaur's revenge well thank you very much in astro blog musgrave Thank you very much, Brenda, for having me on and helping to share the skies with the world. Excellent. Good night, mate. And here is the Astrophys News. And, of course, there's only one news story this week. The first image of an actual black hole, well, a silhouette of a black hole, was shown simultaneously at five global press conferences last night. I watched at 11 o'clock and the excitement was fantastic while the image itself will become an iconic science image like Einstein poking his tongue out and those first steps on the moon. All credit to the team of 200 engineers, mathematicians and astronomers who work on the Event Horizon Telescope, the EHT which is actually a network of nine radio telescopes spanning the globe. As the Earth turns, the nine instruments become one single high-resolution radio telescope that was focused on the centre of M87 star, the centre of a galaxy 
53 million light years away in the constellation Virgo. If your eyes had the same resolving power, you would be able to see a golf ball on the surface of a moon, but I'm not sure if the Apollo crews played any golf there. But I do remember seeing them hooning around in a golf buggy. Now, there's so much material about this historic image and the EHT that I don't want to say much more except that we are trying to get Dr. Katie Bowman on the show. Congratulations, Dr. Katie. She is a woman who led the team which created the algorithm to crunch the five petabytes of data from 500 kilograms of hard drives from the EHT radio telescopes. Now, to finish off, I can highly recommend a short video explanation of the features of this historic black hole image. It's a truly excellent video for those who like their science explained with great clarity. You can find it at tinyearl.com forward slash explain black hole, all lowercase, all one word. We'll see you in two weeks when we're talking with Dr. J.J. Eldridge from New Zealand. Now you know why.